The Truth About the Jews, an essay by Matt Ruby. That's me. My father was obsessed with air conditioning. Our big job as kids was to blast the AC for at least an hour before he returned home from work. That way, the living room would be frigid by the time his favorite show, Jeopardy, came on the air. If we failed at this polar mission, his ire was palpable. I never met someone less chill about keeping things chill. Eventually, it occurred to me that one of the reasons he felt this way was probably because he had been a tank commander in the Israeli military in the late 1950s. I can only imagine what that must have been like, sitting in the desert heat in a metal hot box for hour upon hour, just schwitzing. I imagine him fantasizing, one day I will live in America and make my children cool my home until it feels like a freezer. And then, somehow, he made that a reality. If you knew him, the idea my father was ever in the military was actually pretty absurd. He was one of the most gentle and passive people you could ever meet. He may have talked a tough game, but he was intensely shy and mostly just wanted to be left alone. The most worked up I'd ever see him was when he saw someone mistreating an animal. How could anyone do that to something so innocent, he would lament. This is an NBC News special report. Good morning, everyone. I'm Laura Jarrett alongside Joe Fryer here in New York. We have breaking news out of Israel this morning where Hamas has launched a surprise attack. By the way, in case you're wondering, your Jewish friends are in a daze. They can't believe you didn't check in on them. More people reached out to me about the mud at Burning Man than this, said one shocked Jewish friend. They're all calling each other and asking, how are you doing with all of it? And there's no need to ask what it means. They are meeting, hugging, and crying, and they can't believe how many people seem to think hostage-taking, baby-killing, sexual assault, and burning people alive was on any level complicated. They wonder what part of setting fire to peace activists is tough to denounce. They feel like the world, on some level, thinks they deserved what happened on October 7th. They remember the initial reaction before bodies started arriving at the morgues in Gaza, before Israel even dropped a bomb in retaliation. They saw the celebrations, the calls for intifadas, and the crowds chanting, gas the Jews. So they wonder about this current outcry. Even if Israel behaved perfectly, would it ever be enough? They thought what happened on October 7th was something you read about in history books. Not what shows up as breaking news on your iPhone. All of a sudden, the cartoonishness of Jewish holidays? Oish, this is how we suffered that time. Feels like, actually, no, is reality TV. And they worry about the same thing Jews have worried about throughout history. That it's only a matter of time. One friend in New York City told me she started carrying a knife. They've also never felt more Jewish. It reminds me of when Obama was asked on 60 Minutes about, quote-unquote, deciding to be black. Sure, he had a white mom, but when he couldn't catch a cab, or when white folks assumed he was the help, well, that's when he knew. 
Sometimes society decides who you are. And that's been a wake-up call to a lot of Jews. It doesn't matter if they go to synagogue or even if they believe at all. When the darkness descends, it doesn't ask questions. There is no, how Jewish are you, quiz. When the darkness descends, it just drops. Even those who are half a world away in what they thought was a safe space, who have spent their entire lives trying to fit in, are realizing that they may be somehow forever, irrevocably different. And for many, for the first time ever, they're saying we when referring to Israel. At the same time, they're seeing any moral high ground they had vanishing too. The Gaza City neighborhood, once known as El Rimel, the Sands, reduced to ashes. Its residents retrieve what they can, which isn't much. Israel continues to pound the strip, targeting, it says, Hamas infrastructure. Residents in shock are asking why. They've gone immediately from being killed to becoming killers. What a whiplash. They don't wish for the current brutality in Gaza. Their dominant emotion is sadness, not a thirst for vengeance. And they know Jews are now the ones delivering cruel puzzles. Evacuate now, Israel commands. People with nowhere to go. Turning Gaza into the world's most tragic escape room. They listen to the Kibbutz episode of the Daily Podcast and weep. And they listen to the Gaza one and weep even more. They wonder why no one's mentioning that maybe Hamas should surrender. Feels like that could be a pretty good way to avoid more dead Palestinians, no? They're realizing being a death cult is a pretty good geopolitical strategy since everyone just goes, well, we can't reason with those guys, so... They want to respond, look at our past. We are the victims. I mean, how many wars throughout history have Jews started? All they've ever done is get murdered and evicted no matter where they go. When, if ever, are they allowed to fight back? They feel like no one understands history. Is that ignorance willful? And they know what Israel has done to the Palestinians too. They know what happens when you kill 20 of theirs for each one of yours, when you trap people in confinement without hope for decades. They understand the repercussions of steam that has nowhere to go. Pain is pain. Trauma is trauma. Dead babies are dead babies. They prefer the righteous path, but don't know what it is. How does one respond when faced with a death cult that doesn't care about anyone's life, including their own and those of other Palestinians. How should a military attack a force that uses human shields? What can be done when the enemy puts bombs in hospitals and schools? And why are they the ones forced to solve such impossible riddles? They see the horrid effects of the blockade, yet also wonder what weapons Hamas might have had without one. And they all know this phrase, if the Arabs put down their weapons today, there would be no more violence. If the Jews put down their weapons today, there would be no more Israel. How many times can they be attacked before deciding restraint is not the answer? And how many times can they be expected to offer peace and be rejected before giving up? And they're also in group chats sharing memes and propaganda. I mean, when it comes to propaganda, social media ain't got nothing on the WhatsApp group chat. So they hear the media saying Hamas does not represent the Palestinians, but 
Then they see a meme that 57% of Gazans support Hamas and 71% support Jihad. And they see a video of prepubescent children in Gaza being taught to spew hatred. And this was before the recent attacks. And they're saying stuff like, I'm prepared to be a suicide bomber. I'm ready to stab a Jew and drive a car over them. We have to constantly stab them, drive over them and shoot them. Stabbing and running over Jews brings dignity to the Palestinians. And all that's coming from the mouths of little kids. How can you negotiate with that? How can you negotiate with people who are teaching their kids that? Should they wait for eternity for a Mandela, Gandhi, or Martin Luther King Jr., who's, let's be honest, never going to arrive? And that means they're forced to embrace brutal mathematics. If Israel doesn't respond, attacks will keep happening. If Israel responds too harshly, they're war criminals. So what's the proper amount of violence to inflict? If no deaths in Gaza means more attacks, but tens of thousands makes Israel a global pariah, what's the right amount? How does one calculate that? And what does even asking that question do to the questioner? My father actually grew up in Palestine, a resident before the state of Israel even existed, back when Jews and Palestinians lived side by side. I remember my grandmother used to tell me, your great-great-great-great-grandfather was one of the first pharmacists in all of Palestine. So my people have roots there too. I'd sometimes ask my dad about his feelings on the conflict. Often he'd defend the Palestinians. He had no hate for them. But also he advised there is no solution. He said, you can't make peace with people who don't want it. He was not a violent man. He served not because he was militaristic, but because he had to do it. His biggest desire in life was to be left alone. Actually, that could describe most Jews. The front lines of the IDF are a bunch of dudes who'd rather be a burning man than attacking tunnels in Gaza City. Israel was supposed to be the place Jews knew they'd be safe. Yet here they are again, same as it ever was. I keep thinking about those kids at God, can you believe it was called the Festival of Peace and Love? See, I've been to an all-night dance party in Israel, and I can tell you at that time of the morning, most of them were on drugs. Can you imagine that? Watching the sunrise, rolling on Molly, vibing with the music, laughing with your friends, and then looking up in the sky to see paragliders who start raining death upon you? running for your life straight into an ambush where even more terrorists gun down everyone around you and well we all know the rest by now could there be a greater swing from peak joy to pit of fear what happens to a brain that wildly switches from serotonin and ecstasy to adrenaline and agony like that it's simply unimaginable one second they were touching God the next They were swimming through hell. How could anyone do that to something so innocent? And when the innocents decide they must retaliate, what do you expect to happen? And perhaps most dangerous of all, what if everyone involved thinks they are the innocents?
And now let's bring in producer Jeremiah McVeigh. Hey, Jeremiah. Hey, Matt. So I couldn't help thinking when I read this essay and then when I heard you delivering it as well about um, you mentioned what your dad's reaction had been to incidents when he was alive. I mean, is it worth asking what you think he would think of this, what it's just happened recently and the fallout from it? Sure. I mean, yeah, he's passed away, uh, so I can't actually ask him. But I, I think my guess would be that none of this is surprising, that this is sort of built up steam, like I said in, in the essay, and uh, that it's just a, a data point in a cycle, that it's an endless feedback loop that just keeps going back and forth. And this is just one more example of that, you know. Um, and I don't know what he would advocate for as a solution. I think he'd also, like most Israelis right now, have a lot of fury for Netanyahu and the Israeli government for, uh, you know, sort of the attacks on democracy that have been going on in Israel. And then also kind of taking their eye off the ball, for lack of a better analogy, because that's the one thing he was supposed to provide. Like, OK, you got this guy who, who is so messed up in so many other ways, but at least we're safe. And so, you know, when you've got your, you know, the classic, you had one job sort of thing. And when you fail at that one job, then I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of righteous fury in response to that. So that's my best guess at what he would think, which unsurprisingly aligns with a lot of what I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I am my father's son. <laughs> I can't help but think of George W. Bush and how he, for years after 9-11, somehow got away with saying, I've kept us safe since then. It was always sort of like a weird thing to say for a lot of people, including myself, maybe you as well, of the guy who let our guard down. And then that's how he is portrayed as like this protector. And it seems like a lot of people who are who put themselves out there as like sort of strong leaders, aggressive leaders, militaristic leaders of of countries and on the right let's say they have often gotten away with that kind of rhetoric but it seems to have not worked this time with with netanyahu it seems like there have been a lot of polls that have come out since the attack that have basically said we're not happy with you it taps it to the larger like israelis constantly feel uh, this existential threat in a way that Americans certainly didn't like 9-11 and were furious about it. But at no point we're like, oh, no, this might be the end of America. Um, and, and so I think there's just a contextual aspect to it. And also, uh, you know, in the past, when there have been, you know, security failures in Israel, there is accountability and the government does change and, and someone takes the fall for it. Whereas in America, it seems like uh, people are able to kind of skate a little more easily. Yeah, yeah. And of course, he's had issues lately of allegations of corruption. He's barely been able to hold on to his position. So I'm sure that's good context as well. I do want to bring up these two graphics that were in the newsletter version of this essay that you sent out that didn't really fit into an audio essay. There wasn't a really good way to put them in to that part of the show. But I think that it's worth bringing up what those graphics sort of describe. So one is uh, from Wikipedia. It was sort of doctored by someone slightly for effect, but it's basically about every war that Israel has been in since its creation and how none of them were actually started by Israel. 
Um, mm-hmm. So over and over again, from the Yom Kippur War to the Six Day War to you know attacks from Gaza, there's always been uh, some sort of initiation by another country upon Israel or another territory upon Israel that then they've responded to. And I think mm-hmm. there's a, a, a real ignorance of historical context here, especially when people just sort of are, are young or don't understand the history or just sort of like see this as like a narrative of like colonizer and colonization and uh, or look at a map of, you know, what the original split of land was and then see what it is now without realizing that like, you know, uh, Israel has been invaded and attacked over and over again in a way that it's felt like it had no choice but to respond. Now, also, the other image that I included was the amount of dead Palestinians compared to dead Israelis year by year over the past 20 years or so, and how uh, it literally is about a 20 to 1 ratio of, you know, for every Israeli that gets killed, uh, 20 times as many Palestinians wind up dying. And to not factor that in, if you're like looking at the rage that Palestinians are, you know, clearly feeling and and what's happening to Palestinians in Gaza right now, um, and almost seeing like there's some sort of formula, a grisly formula of some sort that Israel has adopted on some level as a deterrence, perhaps, but just, yeah, like uh, in that scene in uh, The Untouchables when Sean Connery is giving advice to Kevin Costner, you know, every time they put one of yours in the morgue, you put 10 of theirs in the morgue. And that seems to be like literally the foreign policy that Israel has adopted as a deterrent strategy. And, you know, I think a very questionable one, because if you're trying to get people to not have rage for you and not attack you, to just constantly be killing exponentially more of them than you're losing doesn't seem to be an effective solution. So I think you've got, you know, to me, this is about this historical context of like people who think that this is all black and white or that there's here's the good guys and here's the bad guys or that it is just, you know, some sort of uh, clean cut uh, uh, apartheid or colonization type uh, framework that, you know, you can see in other parts of the world and then apply here. It just seems like uh, a a real display of ignorance to me and a, uh, a lack of understanding the nuance and complexity and historical sort of context of everything that's happening right now. And, you know, unfortunately it, it leads you to a place where you're like, there is no easy solution there. Like what, it's what I was trying to get at in the essay. What, what is the righteous path here? How do you behave ethically in this situation? How, how do you solve the riddles that the people, you know, being forced to make these choices are being forced to solve? And, uh, you know, anyone who's like, Oh, there, here's the clean, simple solution I think is being naive. Right. Yeah. I think that, uh, first off, that policy has been called disproportionate response, right? I've I've never been sure if that was the term that Israel uses, sort of uh, not boasting exactly, but, uh, you know, just sort of explaining, or if that's been more of a critique or a little bit of both. Sure. I think you also have to look at war and what is proportionate when it comes to war when you know japan attacked the u.s at pearl harbor and and we responded by dropping a bomb is that a proportionate response and what if pearl harbor had kept happening every 10 or 15 years how would america have responded then what's the moral ethical way to respond to people who keep attacking you and also to people who are ruled by a death cult that's sworn that you should no longer exist i just feel like uh you wind up with a lot of thorny 
ethical and moral issues here when you're deciding how to respond and, and what's you know appropriate? I guess I would just say to that, I definitely think that the atomic bomb was an immoral act. So for me, that's an easy one. But that I feel like is almost beside the point, because as you're kind of also getting at, I think the challenges that are all wrapped up in the Israel-Palestine conflict are so unique that it's it's hard to draw parallels even. It's not a war between two states even. One of them doesn't have a state and has groups like Hamas taking it on themselves to fight on behalf of a people who don't necessarily want them to be fighting that way. And then you get mixed messages outside of the region, at least, about how representative certain groups are of the people that they claim to be fighting on behalf of, which muddies the waters for people who aren't really involved in it, and but feel like they have to have an opinion for some reason. Sometimes I'm not sure why everybody has to have an opinion on this stuff. <laughs> right. Um, so I just think it's so unique, yeah. unfortunately, that it's it's just so hard to grapple with, obviously. I mean, <laughs> that's like the, the most simplistic statement you could ever say about this, I guess. But No, it's true. Yeah. Like we can all be like, there should be a proportionate response and collective punishment is wrong. And then you can argue the other side of like, what do you do when people are using their citizens as human shields? And I agree. It's like a riddle. Anyone who's like, I have the right answer. Like even people who are like, there needs to be yeah. a ceasefire. I'm like, I understand where you're coming from. I'm also like, but then what? What, what what are you expecting Israel to do? Just nothing? Like, what is the solution right. here? And unfortunately, I don't have, yeah, a, I don't I have mean, a good answer. That gets into like, we're not going to solve, uh, we're not going to solve on this podcast the whole <laughs> issue of Israel and Palestine. Of course, you know? of course. So I, I, it just, there's so many cans of worms to dig into if yeah. we really wanted to. Because then you get into like the two-state solution that has never happened and, you know, who was promised what and sure. uh, who is not following through on promises. And it's just sort of like, you know, it, it just all feeds into itself. It's like a snake eating its own tail at some point, it feels like. I hear you. Yeah. And I think, I guess, you know, not to have sounded callous, you know, throughout, like, I can't believe that uh, dead children is the solution on either side, anywhere. All I see that doing is creating more rage and more hatred and just leading to this uh, deepening of the cycle. And so someone somehow somewhere needs to be like, we're, we are not the ones who are for killing children. And now for some quickies. I've been studying the root causes of the Israel-Palestine conflict, and I'm realizing all those dudes obsessed with the Roman Empire, they were kind of onto something. I liked it better when world events happened and not everyone had to make a statement about it. Like, I don't need Goldbelly to tell me its official position on war crimes. They can just send me my Namwa dumplings without bringing geopolitics into it. It's absurd to hold all citizens responsible for the actions of their government. And I know this because I live in a country that elected Donald Trump and all I ever want to do is scream, it's not my fault, I swear. 
You can subscribe to or follow this show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. And when I say that, I mean, like, leave it a good review. I feel like that's obvious, but if, you, if you're just going to leave it a bad review, you, you don't have to. Anyway, it helps others find the show, which I really appreciate. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at mattruby at hey.com. That's mattruby at hey.com. And if you like this podcast, you should subscribe to the Rubes Letter, where what you just heard first appeared. You can find that at mattrubycomedy.com slash subscribe. And while you're at mattrubycomedy.com, you can also find links to my Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, where I post clips of my stand-up and other stuff, too. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. 